this naked mind. If it didn't save my life, it definitely changed my life. And it probably saved my life. How many books have you sold? To date. A million books, over a million books. We are under this kind of collective thought error that if we're not drinking, we're missing out. I knew that if I didn't stop drinking, I was either going to lose everything or I was going to die. I have never thought about that before this moment. But really? No, I never have. Annie Grace. Hi, Arlen. It's Annie so good. Grace. I can't say your name without saying your full name. Yeah. Do you find that people have that issue or is it just me? Um, my mom still calls me Annie Grace. Is it so your real name? It is my first full name. Yeah. 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 That's so, incredible. Yeah. Like the double Annie name Grace. Thing. And I think it, it it's one of the reasons I chose your book over other books in the same genre was your name. Oh, that's awesome. Do you think about things like that when you're like when you put when you chose your first two names as your kind of Well, I mean, I love like for me, I think one of the things that I was sort of born to do was to help people be kind to themselves. And so like the word grace for me, and then somebody told me once, they're like, you know, Annie means grace. So it's kind of like grace squared. And I was like, all right, I'm here wow. for this. This is obviously meant for me. So wow. yeah, yeah, I think about it. Okay, so I'm gonna set the stage and let everyone understand that your book, This Naked Mind, this book that I'm showing right here, and I guess for this camera, I'll show, this book, This Naked Mind, um, if it didn't save my life, it definitely changed my life. And it probably saved my life. Wow. So that needs to be understood, right? And how, first of all, how many books have you sold to date? A million books, over a million books. This is called Your First Million. <laughs> yeah, there and you we go. we talked to a lot of people about their first million dollars. Yeah. We're talking to you about your first million copies sold of your book. Do you have any data on how many books reach that level? I actually looked, my son was like, oh, come on, it's not that big of a deal. And I looked it up and it was um, one in 25,000 books sells yes. a million copies. Yes. It, I, I know a lot of people who have books. I have my own book, a, but I know very few people who have sold one million copies of their book. The reason, it's sold this many is because of what it promises and what it delivers on. Mm. So can you describe the book to anyone who is new to it? Yeah, so like r the book was based on my own journey, my own being stuck and not knowing how to get out of my own being stuck. And I think that, you know, a book, especially like a self-help book like mine, it's so important to have like one thing, like this is the thing that this book is gonna do. So my book claims, and I know it sounds radical, but you already said it delivered, so, but it claims that it's gonna put you back in the mindset of a non-drinker. So not somebody who's sober and feeling deprived that they can't drink anymore, not somebody who's you know, in recovery, although certainly people choose to identify that way, but somebody who just feels like they're as attached to alcohol as if they never drank in the first place. Mm. So they really feel kind of, quote, naked in their mind and like a child, like, oh, why would I do that? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It does feel for me, and I'll, for anyone who doesn't know, I drank heavily from 21 to 36 and for 15 years would drink every single day of my life without fail unless I was very, very ill some other way. And, you know, when you hit your 30s, it was cute in my 20s, yeah. probably. Uh, not to the people I was like, uh, you know, like really sloppy with. Uh, but you start to get these hangovers and you start to make decisions that are poor and you, your health starts to fade. And my, my, I remember that my back and like my sides would ache even when I wasn't drinking. And after a while, I knew that if I didn't stop drinking, I was either going to lose everything or I was going to die mm -hmm. in my sleep. That's what I understood. And so in this last ditch effort, I said, okay, I guess I'm gonna have to go to um, rehab. It was very scary to think of that. Okay. And because I had made that decision, I said, let me try one more thing. Cause I thought maybe I can be hypnotized. Maybe something will work. So I said, I'm gonna try an audiobook, an audiobook about drinking. And I went on Amazon and I looked at lots of different choices and I chose yours, partially because of your name. 
Um, and also just because I, it seemed like it, the reviews were saying it's logical. And I thought, I can deal with logic. But I promise you, I did not have high hopes because so many things had not worked. Mm -hmm. And I tried it, I played it for five days in the morning usually because you say don't drink while you're reading it you can drink that day but not while you're actually reading it so for me if i start drinking at noon you know that have to start listening to this earlier right and i did drink and i drank uh and on day five i reached for the liquor for the tito's that i drink every single day starting at 5 p.m and i didn't want it I, my, I put my hand down and I was like, oh, I don't, I don't want it. I thought it was a freak accident or some fluke. I thought, what? So I tell that story because I want to understand how many times have you heard that? Oh, so many times. Out. And it gives me like, it gives me chills every single time because that was my experience upon finding this information, upon researching alcohol, upon, I mean, really just knowing the truth about what alcohol is and does in the body. It's hard to want it. I was actually having a conversation yesterday with somebody and he was like, how would we explain it to like an alien? Like if there was an alien that just kind of came and we're like, this is what we do. We drink this stuff. It happens to make us puke if we drink too much and it costs us a lot of money. And sometimes we make fools out of ourselves and, and, and they would be like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> what yeah. are you doing? So explain your process for this book because a lot of people have tried to stop drinking and it's not necessarily their fault that they can't yeah. stop i hope it wasn't my fault right absolutely that's not. a lot of what this book talks about what did you discover about alcohol that people before you could not articulate so it, like it's not your fault i mean that's the first thing to know and understand is that if you're drinking more than you want to be drinking like it is not your fault your brain has literally gotten confused because of a dopamine response in the brain and very other like neurochemicals to equate alcohol at the same level as something you need for your survival so like the same level as oxygen or food and so you're sitting there and you're trying not to drink and your brain is literally telling you you will die like this is a life and death situation and then unfortunately in our culture in our society we don't understand that so then we judge ourselves as you know weak immoral broken not normal all of these things that are kind of in the zeitgeist around alcohol and when we judge ourselves that way it increases our pain which what do we do when we're in pain we drink more and so we create this whole sort of inner battle within ourselves which i think is radically painful probably one of the most painful parts of any kind of addiction is the infighting you know if you consider it yesterday we were at um my son's basketball game and the coach on the other team was like a real piece of work and he was getting mad at our coach he was getting mad at his players and i'm having this body response to this coach being mad you know to conflict external with somebody i don't know and yet when we're not able to stop drinking we have this internal conflict and we just discount it because it happens to us all the time so it's just part of life that's how we live and it is so painful and so toxic and so i guess yeah just to start off and say like it is for sure not your fault and i think the belief that it is our fault is one of the things that keeps us stuck and who is lying to us oh my gosh i mean it, it, it's interesting because for sure there is radical amounts of money put toward selling alcohol and and towards targeting specific audiences um you know they've identified women as an underserved audience within the alcohol advertising conglomeration about a decade ago. So they started to make all of these different types of brands that would attract women like Cupcake Wine or Mommy's Time Out. And it's, it's so fascinating because how they have to sell alcohol is they have to sell it based on the things that we as human beings want the most. So we want love, we want connection, we want acceptance, we want friendship, you know, we want romance. And of course, alcohol doesn't do any of those things for you, but we are under this kind of collective thought error that if we're not drinking, we're missing out on something really vital in life. And so we kind of like slide into it. And then because it's an addictive substance and yet it's not really talked about or understood as an addictive substance. Mm -hmm. It's unfortunately talked about as if it's an addictive substance to a certain percentage of the population, a small 
percentage of the population that are, quote, alcoholics or who have a genetic abnormality. And so we go through life thinking, well, I can't get addicted. I remember being 26, living in New York City, being told that I needed to really show up at the bar if I wanted to be serious about my career. That's where the deals were done. And if you would have asked me at that point in my life, is alcohol addictive? Is it going to, you know, eventually cost you something? I would have said, no, I'm not an alcoholic. And no, no concept that alcohol, the substance itself, just like anything else. And there's no doctor or medical professional that will disagree with that. But somehow it's totally obscured in yeah. our cultural narrative. And, and culturally and socially, it's so interesting. Uh, you talk about it in the book. And also, I just keep noticing it on television or even in your own friend group. Yeah. If you say... I'm not drinking today, and you're someone who's known to drink, or you're not known to be sober. Everyone asks you if something is wrong. Yeah. If, especially if you're a woman, they'll say, are you pregnant? Yes. <laughs> or they'll think it. Something has to be wrong for you not to be drinking in this social environment where we're all drinking. What have you learned about that in your research? It's amazing because we wouldn't do that for literally anything else. Like, we, we wouldn't be... <laughs> If you just stopped eating meat, for example, yeah. I wouldn't be like, oh, my gosh, are you okay? Do well, you have... we're in L.A., so maybe. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it would be a thing. But but you in the book, you use milk, I think, as an example right. or something like, like that. Like, if you said, I'm not going to have milk, the whole table is not going to turn around. Nobody's going <laughs> to. In a collective gasp. And it's a really good example, actually, because uh, milk, or if you if you came, if you realized one day that milk, was affecting you, right? Like it was, it was making you throw up randomly. It was making you do and say things you regretted. It was, you know, you know, having all these impacts. And somebody said, "Oh, you can't drink milk anymore." You might be kind of bummed. You might have to like learn how to like coconut milk, but you wouldn't identify with that for yeah. the rest of your life. You wouldn't go and be like tragically upset about it. And mm -hmm. so, what is different about alcohol? And of course, it is the addictive nature of alcohol. It's the fact that it's gotten intertwined in our, our like neurological processes. And when we don't detangle that and we see it as if, oh, well, if you just want to drink too much, something's just wrong yeah. with you. Let's compare it to smoking, too, because smoking is somehow, especially now, seen as like a, a faux pas or something that is like weird if you do it. It's still like, it's like you're smoking still? That's like so 80s or whatever. <laughs> right. But it's 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 drink you know drinking is bad for you smoking is bad for you your health yeah you know not just generally smoking actually doesn't make you text your ex <laughs> something right. crazy right <laughs> so actually drinking in my opinion is even more dangerous it doesn't if you smoke and you drive you're not like as likely to hit someone if you're drinking right so what do you why do you think smoking is considered bad for you and you have to go out and there go outside and kind of hide and do it versus drinking. Is that in marketing? It's for sure in marketing. And it's also in the fact that uh, like they did a major crackdown in the late 80s, early 90s on advertising for nicotine, where yeah. it used to be super rampant. You could just advertise however you want. And and it's not that way anymore. So that that changed things culturally a lot. Mm. And um, I mean, I don't know if you remember Joe Camel. I do remember Joe Camel. But <laughs> He was banned because he attracted children, for example. Yeah, and he, he attracted me. Right, right. I saw he was a cartoon. Right, he was a cartoon. Yeah. he was literally a cartoon. Yeah. And so, uh, but we don't we don't have that with alcohol. There's there's not any sort of real limitation on how you can talk about alcohol, which is interesting too, because if you would compare it to, um, you know, alcohol killed in in 2019, alcohol killed 17.6 more times people than cocaine. So can you imagine if we put uh, cocaine advertisement on the Super Bowl, or or would you ever let your friend, like your kids, see somebody? Like, would you go to a restaurant and if people were snorting cocaine, like, would you sit down with your kids and just? Yeah, someone is going to say, car accidents cause a lot of deaths, but we don't hide cars from our kids. You know, someone's going to yep. say that it for an irresponsible adult, it's fine, and I'm not necessarily going to argue with that, um, but. It, it, the part of the book that really was a breakthrough for me was that, and it was over time, it was yeah. several ways that you said it, was essentially we are being lied to, we are being manipulated, and we are the ones who are 
facing the consequences of that. And we're being lied to by the advertisers and by the, the companies who are selling it. Um, just like cigarettes, all this stuff came out about cigarettes. Do you think that it's the government's responsibility to crack down then on alcohol advertisement? You know, I, I think that it's really hard to say because we've tried prohibition before and it didn't work, yeah. right? So I'm not generally in favor of a big, like, abdicating our own responsibility to yes. government. Yes, like, um, And prohibition was about other stuff, too, right? Right, right. Yes, because people thing. were still doing, you know, the, the lawmakers were still drinking. And there's just something about that that's a little bit too... Yeah. And yeah. so I, I think, though, I think that it's... I think that if there was one message that I sort of had for people in general, it'd be like, we owe it to ourselves to educate ourselves about alcohol. No matter if we decide to not drink or drink again or, you know, to cut back or whatever our choice is, like, let's just owe it to ourselves to educate ourselves at least as much mm -hmm. as we, I mean, we literally probably know more about random pharmaceuticals because in those advertisements, you've got half the ad is for the pharmaceutical, half the ad is the disclaimer yeah. of all the side effects. And I think the one thing that I will take issue with that I think that there could be some regulation about is the fact that on the only disclaimer that needs to be on a bottle of alcohol, except in California, it's a little bit different, um, but in, in the rest of the U.S. is drink responsibly. And <laughs> that's so true. <laughs> that's so true. And I really have to take issue with that specifically. Drink responsibly. Because if you're, you're literally saying human being who can get addicted to an addictive substance, if you do that, if you get addicted to something that like is neurologically proven to get you addicted, you're not responsible. And so it puts all of the blame and all of the shame on the individual. Mm -hmm. And it, it's like, it's the most cop-out disclaimer there could possibly be. Like alcohol was declared a known carcinogen in 1988. And, and I'm not usually in favor of like all of the scary statistics about alcohol, because I don't believe they help us change. I think change comes from a different place than that. But it's worth knowing that it's, it's a class one carcinogen. What does that mean? It, causes cancer mm. and we've known that it causes cancer since 1988 like and it's different types of cancers it's not just a few so the fact that that isn't even disclaimed i mean we have you know bpa which is like some chemical in plastic is banned and yet alcohol which is so like it's been known since 1988 that it causes cancer and yet the only thing on the bottle is drink responsibly mm. which again like it it puts the blame on the human being. And I think that's the other thing that really se separates alcohol from other drugs, which we just need to wake up to is we don't have cigarette aholics. We don't have, you know, cocaineism. We don't define the individual by the substance. We mm. define the substance and then we say, oh, you person got addicted to an addictive substance. No problem. You're not the problem, human. The substance is a problem. You just happen to get yourself all mixed up with an addictive substance. But with alcohol, we say, no, you human are an alcoholic. You human have alcoholism, which, you know, that's a whole other can of worms because we could talk about those terms, which they're not even medically or scientifically precise Let's anymore. Let's talk about them. So the word alcoholic has really sort of been um, left behind by the medical and scientific community in favor of alcohol use disorder, which is a spectrum of use and it's categorized with 11 questions. Now, the interesting thing about this is that my belief at the age of 26 when I had my first drink was that just alcoholics could get addicted, so I was fine. I had no alcoholism in my immediate family. My parents, I didn't know them to drink. Uh, they were hippies and so I, thought, all right, I'm in the clear, no big deal. I didn't see any risk, I didn't perceive any risk. And and because of that belief, like I kind of went into drinking sort of head on and obviously there was other factors. But now with alcohol use disorder, if you answer two of those 11 questions, if you say yes to two of the 11, you have alcohol use disorder. Mm. So one of those questions is, do you need to drink more than you used to to get the same effect? Every drinker I know would say yes to that question. Another question is, do you ever have a, have you ever had a time of drinking when you've <laughs> overdone it and regretted it? Mm -hmm. Again, every drinker I know would say yes to that question. And so what I'm taking issue with is the fact that like the term alcoholic makes it an us and them conversation. Yeah, it's something you have become or that you weren't strong enough to 
break from or even avoid. And it takes such a huge amount of, like if, if we're saying the barrier to entry into the conversation about your drinking is that you have to admit to being yeah. an alcoholic, it's, it's a stair it's that's huge. 12 feet high. Because there are people who are not going to have gone and hit the rock bottom right. that many of us have. And it's it's us against them, like you said. It's rock bottom against everybody else, yep. and everybody else is, is going through something. Do you think that alcoholism is inherited? I, let me start over, because... I'm using language, alcoholism is is the language that I'm used to, but do you think that alcoholism is inherited? So it is interesting and it's it's a very like, they're still doing a lot of research. There's been no known identified gene or sequence of genes that you could test for to say, yes, you are going to be more predisposed to have a problem with alcohol. Like there just isn't. Um, There are certain genes who like, certain traits and certain genes that if you test for them in a human, they might be predisposed for, like, they might have a higher chance of becoming addicted to something. These are also, interestingly, the same genes that are very correlated with uh, success and entrepreneurship in some degree. Like, so there's a huge crossover to people who are risk takers, people who are um, very extroverted, people who are willing to try new things, people who are very headstrong. You know, all of those things, like, that's why you're sitting here, that's why I'm sitting here. You know, they, those are traits that really have served me well, but also could have gotten me in trouble with alcohol. But I think that this um, this dialogue it perpetuates because we see what we see is children growing up with alcoholic parents or parents who have abused alcohol having a higher propensity to drink and so we see that direct correlation and so we assume okay it must be genetic it must be something else so we're now we're looking for the genes and we're coming up kind of empty kind of correlations you know a little bit unsure the science is very unclear um, but what's much more likely is that alcohol is a numbing agent. So if you have grown up in a house, in a household that's uncertain, that feels you don't know which mom's coming through the door. Is she gonna be nice? Is she gonna be drunk? Is she gonna be friendly? Is she gonna be angry? Like that level of uncertainty and that leveling of anxiety that it causes a child to grow up with a parent who is over drinking is really intense. And so when they have their first drink, because alcohol numbs the brain, it literally makes your neurons like relate to each other slower, your Mm -hmm. thoughts slow down. Mm -hmm. So you feel a sense of relief. And so your chances of having that second, third, fourth drink go up. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's in my mind, maybe there's something that we'll find eventually in some genetic test. We, I mean, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great if we just had a genetic test? Pee on this stick. We'll tell you to stay away from alcohol. Yeah. But we're nowhere near that because yeah. maybe it doesn't exist. But I th- Yeah, and I think that so many people believe that themselves or others are just destined like yeah i'm my my dad was an alcoholic and i'm just saying you know in general my dad was not but my dad was an alcoholic so yeah. i'm 50 percent more likely to be an alcoholic in there and throw their hands up in the air and i and i think that like the logic from this naked mind it it, it begs you to reevaluate what you've been taught what you think and like what you think as an intelligent savvy person is gospel yeah. is actually just some like wives tale yeah that has been told by like seeming professional seemingly professionals it's very interesting do you think there's a, an, an incentive from doctors and the medical world to not talk about alcohol the way they talk about uh, smoking so I think there is an incentive but I think it's a one you might not expect I think it's a personal incentive because I think the majority of doctors are also going home to relieve stress, yeah, pouring wine. So I think it's very hard for them, you know, awakening that inner yeah. fighting and that cognitive dissonance. Let's talk about wine for a second. For a lot of people, collectors, just people who are interested in understanding wine, it is a point of pride mm-hmm. to be able to tell a wine from another type of wine. Um, and I, I don't really like taking joy away from people. I don't, right. don't want to kind of do that, rain on their parade. But one of the things I remember from your book very vividly, and I read this book five and a half years ago, one of the things I remember is that 
you said something about how like a lot of the things that we talk about, this has an oaky smell or yeah. taste or this is this, is kind of BS. Is that how you would portray it? Or like, what do you think of that when people are like lining up wines and paying $200 a bottle? So I'll say this in two ways. I'll say one with my own experience. My own experience was that I really tried to get into that whole scene because I was a red wine drinker and I was, you know, in, in the UK and I was going to these wine tastings and I really tried to like, but I, I just felt like I was bluffing the whole time. Yeah. Because I just felt like, okay, I've never licked an oak tree. I don't actually know what an oaky <laughs> flavor is. But I was just trying to keep up with the Joneses, right? And so so my experience was that it was very much, I was BSing. Um, but I'll compound that with the fact that I did do some research. And there was this great study that showed that even the most kind of dedicated sommeliers uh, could not distinguish cheap from expensive wines. Yeah. And interestingly, in that same study, they also, uh, p- taste testers could not distinguish pate from dog food. So I think... Mm. <laughs> Wow. Wow. And and that in itself, it's a, it's a whole thing. It's like, it's not a racket, but it's a whole thing. It's like, a whole thing. Because it's... Status. What do you think about um, sort of being in the bear of bad news, right? Like you're, you're not you're not personally taking this yeah. away, but it is, like, that's a social thing that people like. And then people feel like, I have to drink so I can be funny or I can be enjoyable or take anxiety away like medicine. What do you think about when you're, I guess the question is more around the upside versus taking that away? Yeah, absolutely. So I really like this construct that, um, gosh, who was it? Uh, Dan, somebody did it. But it, it basically is like confidence comes last. And so I think when you're thinking about socializing, it is so amazing to learn how to socialize without alcohol. Mm-hmm. Like that's where the confidence comes from. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have, he says, you start with this commitment, you're committed to the way of life. And then the commitment leads to courage, which doesn't actually feel good. You're feeling the fear, you're doing it anyway. I don't know about you, but my first few, like I'm, I'm going and I'm not drinking yeah. and I'm showing up. I mean, I knew I didn't want to drink, but I also was like, oh, I, I really use this as a crutch, mm-hmm. right? Oh, I used to, uh, towards the end, I would need alcohol to go to the grocery store. Oh, yeah. Like, you just start to use it as this is going to lube my life in yeah. some way, right? And then, so then you, you have courage, and then you kind of start to do the thing. And so you become competent. You, you start to do it over and over. And then eventually, you get this really amazing confidence. Mm-hmm. And if you think of confidence, like confidence is actually such a more incredible social lubricant than anything else you yeah. can imagine. Yeah. Like feeling comfortable in your own skin, you help everybody else in the room feel comfortable in their own skin. Mm-hmm. But that actually, it's, it's kind of a hard one thing in a way, and it's so beautiful, but we, we steal that from ourselves when yeah. we use a crutch. And you, when you find that confidence without alcohol, the, another upside is you don't wake up the next morning oh, yeah. wanna, you know, with your face <laughs> just on fire, wishing you had never taken that second drink. Yep. I have a, an example of what, you, what you're describing um, in my public speaking. Yeah. So now I, I speak all over the world. I get paid well to do so. Uh, but I had stage fright my whole life. And one of the things that I would use alcohol for was if I needed to do any sort of public speaking. And I mean like in front of 30 people, yeah. you know, as an example. So one time, uh, late 20s, uh, before the fund, I was asked to to host or co-host uh, a Pride event. It was Colorado Springs Pride. And I was asked to co-host it because I had a blog for lesbians and it was very irreverent and people thought I would be really great on stage. Um, terrible stage fright, but I said yes. And the reason I said yes a few months out was I said, if I get drunk enough, I'll be able to do whatever. Cool, so I was gonna do that. So the day comes around, it's the day before, and I am so scared I start drinking wine at their little event, you know, their event to pr- prior to it. And I drink so much that I am, ooh, life of the party, and then instantly sick. So I'm hungover the next day. And I'm also still terrified. And I ended up not doing it. I ended up having to pull back because I said, I can't go up there. I'm sick and I'm terrified. <laughs> so I ended up hiding behind a tree. I put this in my book. It's about damn time. Uh, I ended up hi- hiding behind a tree when they called my name, like I was in The Sound of Music and I was a Van Trap kid at the end. Spoiler alert. Um, and they were like, Arlen Hamilton. And I wasn't there because I was hiding behind a tree. Um, and I thought, 
well, of course, I'll never be able to speak because I, I couldn't do it then, and you know, I'll try it again. T 2017 was when I read your book. I had already earlier in that year said to myself, I'm going to say yes to three speaking engagements because of other reasons. I really want to get my message out there, but also I kind of want an excuse to say, I tried it, it didn't work. Yeah. So I said yes three times, Shonda Rhimes, I, you know, yeah, right. get, leave me alone. I said yes, and then we move on. And the, the summer of 2017 is when I stopped drinking. And the summer of 2017 was the first time I got paid to speak. Oh, wow. And the summer of 2017 was the beginning of hundreds of times that I've spoken on stage and multi-million dollar uh, revenue from speaking on stage. And every time I spoke, you know, it was drinking, but it was other things. It was other things I had to conquer too. And every time I speak and every time I spoke, I gained confidence. Now imagine if I had somehow convinced myself that the only way I could have this career in speaking was to be drunk. So the, the only way that I go out, someone pays me money to go and you know show up to their event, I have to be sick, right. make myself sick, probably say something to offend someone that I don't even realize I'm doing and probably hurt their feelings and be a person I don't wanna be. Yeah. I only wanna give to the world. And say whatever, think I'm killing it because I'm drunk while I'm doing it and then you know, watch video of myself acting, looking sad and sick. That was like a fork in the road that I'm so grateful for. And for people who think that they need alcohol today, they think I can only be interesting or funny or creative or good at what I do if I'm drunk. I used to think I'm a bad writer if I don't drink. Right, I too. have to drink to be a great, interesting writer. That's gibberish when you look back on it. Yeah then you can know that the clarity is so, so, so much better because you have the talent. You know, this is soaking and drowning the talent yeah. rather than giving it air and light. Yeah, you've like, you've actually earned it. Yeah. And then... And you get better at it. You get better at it. Yeah. You, and it's a real thing that nobody can take away from you because I remember doing the same thing before I'd get on a stage. I'd go to the hotel bar or I'd even have like the little bottles of wine in my purse mm -hmm. right before I'd, mm -hmm. I'd take one or two. And, you know, I was so convinced that was how I got through speaking yeah. events. And I remember getting off stage one time and somebody coming up to me and being like, oh, you're usually really great. And that really felt flat. Oh, what were you speaking about? I was speaking about business. I was yeah. in the UK, actually. And we were at we were in Windsor and we were at this hotel. There was a few hundred people in the audience as we began marketing. And I come off the stage and a, a friend of mine, he's like, I just have to tell you in his British accent, mm -hmm. he's being very polite and direct, that usually you're so you're so on it and you just weren't today. Are you okay? And I had every time like alcohol it doesn't work as well after a while. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to drink more to overcome the nerves than I had I had been. So I'd usually do one and then I was doing two, right? And so I just broke down in tears and he went and sat down with me in the lobby and he's like, what's going on? And I'm like, I didn't prepare. I was up drinking the night before. I I just had been using it as a crutch and it, it like the bottom fell out. It, it wasn't actually sustainable. Yeah. I had not actually gained the skills yeah. that I needed. I want to go back to anyone who's still watching because um, if you're watching, I think this is resonating with you. So I want to go back to the, the main point of your book, which is that it isn't your fault. Right. Like if all this stuff is happening to you and you're like, oh, th that happened to me. Why is that happening? What does alcohol do to the body and to the mind? So it's, I mean, there's so many things, but just a few that we can debunk quickly, which I think give a lot of relief is, you know, first of all, alcohol, when you drink, have a drink, it's increasing your blood alcohol content. It does that for about 20 minutes. And so those are the nice feelings. Those are the feelings that get us hooked. You know, we feel a little tipsy. We feel a little euphoric. We feel a little dizzy. Um, if you time this, and I highly recommend doing it on yourself, just do mm -hmm. your own little alcohol experiment, time it, and then don't have the next drink for an hour and see how long that lasts people 18 to 20 minutes. And then what happens is it peaks and the alcohol starts leaving the body. And when it's leaving the body, you feel unease, you feel anxious, you feel tired, you feel stressed. Now, interestingly, these are very similar to feelings if you were stressed out already that you felt before the drink. 
So your mind does not connect that you're feeling these negative feelings because of the alcohol. You think actually, I just need another drink. And so if you, if you notice you're drinking, you reach for another drink within about 20 minutes of that first one, right? You nurse that one, you reach for another one. The thing is, is the, the 20 minute trade of blood alcohol rising is for a two to three hour trade of your blood alcohol following. Mm. And the next drink won't be 20 minutes. It'll be closer to 10. And the next drink will just be a few more. And then you kind of, you know, you impair your brain. So you're not really recognizing this is happening. But then you're in a, you know, 12 to 15 hour anxious sort of decline. And you wake up the next morning and you've got this anxiety, you've got this stress. And you're sitting there thinking, oh, what's wrong with my life? But your brain doesn't make the connection, right? And so you're prompted to scratch that itch with another drink. And um, another thing that alcohol does that's just worth mentioning is that uh, we have like a happiness circuit in our brain, you know, with different aspects of our brain. And alcohol um, will increase dopamine in the moment. So it, it, it kind of gives you that boost, right? And your brain says, this is too much stimulation. So it actually releases a counter chemical called dynorphin, which turns down pleasure in your brain. Now, the thing is, your body is like, alcohol is a toxin get it out, get it out. You know, you'd even puke to get it out. Mm. Uh, dynorphin's not a toxin. It's naturally occurring. So if you're a regular drinker, you've, you've suddenly created this kind of happiness inhibitor chemical that's almost ever present in your brain if you're drinking every day. And then you find that the things that you are doing, and, and this is why it's so not your fault, because all of a sudden, say you and I went out and we had a great time, no drinks, and then we decided to drink, and then we tried it again with no drinks, it wouldn't feel as good as the time we just decided mm. to drink because we have this like chemical. So the things that you used to do that were great, like, you know, reading a book, hanging out with friends, going out to dinner, having sex, all of these things that were great are all of a sudden without alcohol, not great anymore. And again, your brain makes the association, oh, well, it must have been the alcohol. And we literally couple every single fun experience in our culture with drinking. You know, whether it's going to a sporting event, going to a concert, going out with friends, watching Netflix, what, whatever we're doing, we're, we're coupling it with a drink. And so then we just can't distinguish. And so we try to not drink and we feel sad and we feel deprived and we feel miserable. And it just reinforces this belief that, oh, well, it was the alcohol. Mm. No, no, it was never the alcohol. It's just the alcohol made you believe it was in this kind of twisted way. Yeah. And uh, one of the things you say, the book promises or claims your book, uh, this make it. Let me try that again. Your book, This Naked Mind, is um, that unlike other ways people may have tried to stop you, and I, I can attest this as well. Um, you come out of it no, um, not feeling like you're missing something. Yeah, and and I'd like to I'd like to kind of attack this from from two different um, angles. First of all, so This Naked Mind was originally self published. And so for a self-published book to have sold as well as it has, it means that people have to be talking about it. Yeah. And so by the nature of people talking about it, by the nature of you inviting me here on your business podcast, yes. you know. And being, us being in, on stage at a business right. conference. You before. inviting me to start up grind. Yeah. Like, it's incredible. Like, yeah. people whose lives have been changed, they want to talk about it. Now, historically, this has been, like, the second word in AA is anonymous. Like, mm. this has been a a very subdued, quiet, hidden, shame-based conversation. And so what has happened inside somebody to, why would you want to talk about something? You want to talk about stuff that makes you kind of feel like a badass, like kind of makes you feel empowered, makes you feel strong, makes you feel like you know something other people don't. And so uh, the second part of what I was going to say is, you know, there's so much new research coming out that debunks pretty much what we've thought about behavior change. So we've believed that behavior change comes from repetition. If you just do the thing long enough, if you can just get 30 days sober, 60 days sober, a year sober, then you're gonna feel differently than it's gonna stick. The longer you do it, the more likely it is to stick. The newest research says that's not true at all. Actually, repetition is only correlated with habit change, but it's not causal. There's no indication that even if you do it for years, that it will stick over long-term. But there is something that's causal with habit change. And that's the emotion you feel toward the new behavior. Mm. And so my work is all about helping people feel good and empowered and excited about not drinking, right? Because yeah. if you feel good towards the new behavior, the chances of it sticking go up infinitely, like 
exponentially. Infinitely is a good word. We're going to stick with that. Infinitely. Exponentially. Yeah. Infinitely. Yeah. All together. It's so true. I remember maybe 10 years or so, nine years or so into my drinking, my 15 years, I had a rock bottom. And I really, again, thought I was going to die. And so I locked myself in, I was at a guest house in Burbank at the time, uh, late 20s, early 30s. And I locked myself into that place for like five days because I'd had like a three-day hangover. I had taken myself into oblivion one night mm -hmm. into drinking. And so I said, okay, I'm going to quit. And uh, I watched a bunch of uh, DVDs on my laptop and I just stayed away from everything. And I got myself from those you know, few days and one foot in front of the other to a point where I had stopped drinking. But every single day for a year and a half that I stopped drinking, I wanted a drink so bad. Mm. It was all I could think about all day long and all night. And I was on the brink of relapse every single day. Yeah. I could not go into a bar, couldn't go into a restaurant that had a bar. It was too much. After 2017, reading This Naked Mind, not reach, reaching for that bottle of, of vodka and not wanting it, you could have a bar set up right here. And I wouldn't like it. I'd be kind of mad at you because <laughs> I think it was rude. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't have any instinct to want it. Yeah. You know? And that, that's the, the reprogramming, I guess, in the mind. I think I should also po point out at this time, if people are not familiar with me, uh, or this about me is that I really don't subscribe usually to kind of like the um, things that are flowery or like you know you, you put hope behind it or something like that anything that's religious I've talked about that a lot and so it might feel like this is like some sort of like self-help thing but it's actually so logical that that's the part that got me can you go back and talk about what you said about the correlation between people who are prone to drinking or prone to addiction of certain kind and being successful and being headstrong? Yeah, I will for sure. But I wanted to touch on something you just said, which sure. is if it was just kind of a flowery thing or a, a hope thing, or like one of the toxic positivity things, like those those don't work over the long term either because there's no substance. Mm. And so I think that's what's really important is the reason you feel differently is not because of anything magic I did. It was just because I showed you the science and your brain is intelligent mm. as all of ours are. And it said, huh, I don't know. That doesn't mm. sound like a good idea anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's not, yeah, it's, it's for sure very grounded. Um, but I, I first learned this from an entrepreneur named Alex Sharfin, and he had uh, a lot of experience kind of with in the addiction arena. And we were talking about this this concept once. And there are there are certain genes that entrepreneurs tend to have more than other people. Right. And we also tend to be like somewhat, you know, we can have some neurodiversity. There's other things about entrepreneurs that give us the ability to kind of focus on things for longer or um, take more risks. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and to some degree, it's you know, there's there's downsides to that, too. I think it's hard for really successful people to be fulfilled because we're always chasing the next thing. But that also helps propel us to that next level of success. But those things are I mean, if you were to overlay successful entrepreneurs and how their brains work and people who get addicted to stuff and how their brains work, it's almost a one-for-one -one match. Mm. And it's fascinating to see how what makes genius is also what, if left kind of unchecked and not given that avenue. Because I think that each person, you know, especially in, in your world and your audience and the people whose lives you change, like these are human beings who like they need an avenue for this thing inside of them that is needing more. Right. And when that avenue is something like business mm -hmm. and, and world changing businesses, like what a beautiful place we live in. But it's so easy for that avenue to be something like alcohol or another vice because mm -hmm. we're just longing and in that longing, but it is, it's a very, very direct correlation. Yeah, yeah. I just think, I just know that so many people are, are going to be affected and um, feel like a, 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 an amount of hope that they haven't in the past. 
what do you think they should do? They should grab the book, the audio ver like when I did did it, I used the audio version. And for me, I think that helped more for some reason. Do you think there's a difference? I think the audio version is really good. I, I've been told that by a lot of a lot of people. I'm really passionate about this and I read it myself. And so I think a lot of people find that helpful because yeah. I'm just convicted. Yeah. I've lived it. I've been there. It's it's true for yeah. me. And I also think that, you know, in addition to that, just somehow in your life right now, like awaken curiosity. And the thing about curiosity about your drinking is you can't judge yourself anymore. Yeah. Like you got to put down the judgment. You can't be curious if you're like, oh, I can't believe I did that again. I'm such an idiot. Mm. Like that can't coexist with, huh, why did I do that again? How was I feeling beforehand? What did I think it gave me? And so I think, you know, really that curiosity and self-compassion is, um, I mean, that's obviously in the book, but it, it kind of is the entry point to this dialogue. And, and like you said before, beginning of the book, I'm like, don't, don't try to stop right now. Yeah. Like, just get curious. That got me. That got me. I think it's why I kept, I, I think it's why I'm sitting here, you know, because I don't, I'm an adult. Yeah. And a lot of people watching this are adults and they're like, yes, it makes me feel bad. And yes, I feel like it overpowers me, but it's also, I'm, this is a free land that I'm sitting on. Right. I should be able to make a decision. And that first thing of, <clears throat> I'm not trying to tell you you're wrong or you're right. I'm trying to tell you that taking the information, the data that I've put together, I'm speaking on your behalf, <clears throat> the data that you put together and just decide for yourself. Yeah. Hundred percent. That's really it. What about people? Because you, I think you said that it's for people who want to quit completely, or for people who want to cut down. Yeah. And, and do you have you found that that's help, been helpful for people? Yeah, or? I think, I I think it is very helpful. A lot of people do cut back. Yeah. Um, I will say about cutting back though is if you if you kind of retain the desire for it, or if you kind of hold on to like, but this is really yeah. good. I miss it. Yeah. You're kind of just putting yourself on an alcohol diet. So I think there's a lot of it's oh, a slippery slope. It's a, it, there should be caution. Yeah. Yeah. And I, but I think I think that caution doesn't come from me telling you. I think it comes from you exploring it for yourself, mm -hmm. again, with curiosity, without judgment. Mm -hmm. And we should point out, and I'll, I will need to put this in somewhere, this disclaimer that this should not replace professional help. Absolutely. Um, because it can't, in my case, it, it did, <laughs> you know, but it should not, it, you know, and there's some people who, um, would you say that there are some people who are so sick from alcohol that they should be in like a facility or? Yeah, so according to the Center for Disease Control, 10% of excessive drinkers, not 10% of all drinkers, but 10% of excessive drinkers are like physically dependent. And so that, it, it's so important. My book deals with the, the mental and psychological aspects. It does not deal with the physical aspects, right? There's no tapering plan in there. There's no medical advice. I'm not a doctor. And so it's so important to, if you are physically dependent, like any worry about withdrawals to combine this with some sort of plan, um, assisted with plan your doctor, in, with your doctor. Yeah. You can taper. have seizures. You can yeah, have a really, really hard time if you drink a certain amount. Yeah. And, and I will say that what's interesting about that, though, is something like a rehab facility, you know, they're dealing, a lot of it is with the physical aspects, right? So you're, you're going to a 14-day detox or you're getting your physical thing under control. But when you walk out, if you still want to drink and you don't get the mental part under mm -hmm. control, but there's, there's not as enough, in my opinion, of an emphasis on, on the mental part. Because if we don't think differently about it and feel differently about it, then yeah, even if we get the physical part under control. So it has to be both and. Did you read Matthew Perry's book? I've watched some of his YouTube videos a little bit, but I haven't read his book yeah. yet. Have I, you? I've read part of it. Um, it's really good. It, it, but what I, what I got from it is, is that he needs to be talking to you. Because I feel like he, he is very much... Um, this is just my opinion, but it feels like he's very much locked into this is happening to me. I have no control over it. It's I was destined because my dad was an alcoholic, you know, X, Y, Z. And I feel like that there's some freedom that you could give him um, specifically. And I've always um, cared about I Matthew, Matthew Perry. Perry. <laughs> yeah, so I've great. always cared about him and, and I'm glad he's with us and yeah. all the things. And I, But I just think there's some some freedom that you provide for so many people. And you were on 
um, Red Table Talk, yeah. right? Can you talk about what that experience was like? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about one of the most profound moments of that experience, which actually didn't have to do with Jada or Willow or Gammy, but um, one of the most profound moments was I was actually on and they were filming the Kelly Osbourne episode the same time yeah. that I was filming it. And I think this goes to what you were talking about, about again, back in that, that whole conversation about the negative emotion that we can bring to recovery right? That we can live in that place of feeling, you know, as you were describing Matthew Perry, like maybe still feeling powerless, maybe still feeling um, victimized, right? By something out of his control. And, and that negative emotion can just perpetuate, you know, number one, just not enjoying your life as much, mm -hmm. but also, you know, I think it can also perpetuate relapse. Anyway, Kelly Osborne was talking about how she had relapsed during the pandemic. And I'm in the back there in the green room and I can see all the screens. I can also see them out of the corner of my eye. The red table, it was all very cool because it was at Will Smith's house. It was yeah. really, really exciting day. And, um, and, and she was talking about how she, she got back on track. She knew why she did it. She was feeling comfortable again. And she was asked by Gammy, who's been sober for a very long time. Actually, I don't think uh, Jada drinks either, yeah. um, but has been sober for a very long time. And she said, do you have support? And Kelly said, well, no, because 90% of my women's group relapsed. And so it disbanded. Oh. And I was just like, we've lost the plot. Mm. Like, if, if that's the level of shame that we feel with the people who are supposed to be supporting us the most, mm. that we can't come back to each other after we feel like we've messed up. Yeah. We need each other more than ever in that moment, like yeah. during COVID. And yeah. so it, it just made me really sad. And I'm like, oh. I feel like we just we have to bring some sort of you know acceptance and grace into this conversation no pun intended but like yeah i think grace needs to be in every conversation yeah. about alcohol <laughs> <laughs> i really do um that's interesting and and the being on that show and did you have like immediate feedback from that show yeah yeah it was really really spectacular i mean it's yeah. it's incredible how much more that show gets watched i was on nightline yeah. a few months before i was like an eight minute segment on nightline and i was like this is the end all be all media opportunity and um nightline gets a few hundred thousand views yeah red table got it gets millions, a few million views. millions of views <laughs> i think people sleep on the business uh, acumen of of Jada Pinkett. Oh, it's amazing. She's lost in the sauce a lot of times with all the other stuff, but yeah, yeah. That's, that's a juggernaut. Um, and speaking of business, what does it feel like to have a million books sold and how, not just feel emotionally, but how, how does it affect your day to day? Do you have people reaching out to you every day? Because, because I know what it's like to have a, a, a percentage of that sold <laughs> and it's a lot, right? Um, so inbox wise, I get like 10,000 emails a month, which yeah. is really, really cool. A about lot of, this topic. About this topic. 10,000 emails a month about your book. Yes. Wow. Yes. And wow. it's, you know, most of those are thank you letters. Some of them are questions, you know, some of them are other things. So I obviously have, have help responding to that, but, um, yeah, and I'll get randomly recognized, which is my th my kids think is very cool. Yeah. I I do not. I get very embarrassed. Oh, I feel like. you do. You're not being like you're not pretending to. You're like super, like yeah. humble and shy and stuff. But I don't like it. But um, but if you see me, it's all right. I'm fine. Yeah, you please, say hi please to me. say hi to you. <laughs> yeah, it's better hi. than like sort of staring and like you're like why I are just you staring? Get, I just get shy. Um, but yeah, my kids think that's very very cool. I. I spend a lot of time, I mean, I live in kind of the middle of nowhere in the mountains and I spend a lot of time writing and researching and working on my next book. Um, and so, uh, yeah, day to day, I'm getting to do what I really love to do because my readers had started to ask for other sort of things. And mm -hmm. so I've built a free sort of 30 day uh, app challenge and different things like that. Mm -hmm. And um, now I train coaches in this methodology. So that's been really cool. They've been able to hang up little naked mind sort of um, coaching centers all over the world, which yeah. has been incredible. So it's really Yeah, I see you with, the, with the, the throw going around and I mean, I guess you could have a career in being the guru to celebrities or or people like that. Have you thought about that, or is that? I have never thought about that before this moment. But really? No, I never have. All right. <laughs> We're gonna put that in the intro that you said. Yeah. <laughs> because I Call can see up, you Matthew definitely Perry. doing that if you think about 
So the, the good thing about it is that I wouldn't say do it instead of. I would say speak to the world because we need you. But I also think there are um, people with a lot of money and a lot of influence, a lot of fame, who are struggling. Yeah. And um, if they can't, you know, walk into a place, and even if they do walk into an AA meeting or something, like we've talked about, it's not always the way. I, I haven't found AA to be helpful. It was pretty tough for me, but it does help a lot of people. Yeah. And I just think um, there are people who might not be able to reach out to other types, right? Yeah. But for you, you wrote the book on it. If they find your book to be interesting at all, you know, if they can go look up your Red Table Talk uh, conversation, how do they get in touch with you? You're on Instagram? Yeah, Instagram at This Naked Mind. What's your website? Uh, thisnakedmind.com. Thisnakedmind.com, so you can contact you there if someone's yeah. watching. And they do, because we have, uh, we run the gamut on who watches this, yeah. right? And who listens oh, to the awesome. audio version. And I know that there are some people who have a lot of, you, you just frankly, they have a lot of money, but maybe not a lot of support yeah. when it comes to something like no, this. I would and love they that. would not know where to go. That would be great. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's, I, I see that for you because. You know, you've reached a million. Do you do you have people? I know I asked you this. I was like, can you do it for for eating? Like, you know, do you have people who say, can you make this Naked Mind for X Y Z? Yes. So I just um, last October published this Naked Mind for nicotine, which I had a co-author because I didn't smoke, but I've had rave reviews. People are able to just have the same mindset. So for nicotine. for smoking, for smoking, vaping, is it is it out already? It's out. Yeah. And what's it called? It's just this Naked Mind nicotine. Amazing. Yeah. And, and a few years ago, you didn't have that. You were sort no. of like, I, we can't do it for that. I know people have asked me personally, and they've asked us in person, can you do it for weed? Can you do it for this, this? Do you, so my question is about um, eating, weed. Do you think there is a series to be had? Yes. Yeah. So I, I am on my own food journey, and I have been applying these tools. And I feel, I feel I've written probably two-thirds of something significant around food really um yeah so wow. i'm excited about that yeah wow and you're like brene brown in that you deal with a lot of data a lot research. of data that's yeah. how because i started the, the conversation asking about your process talk a little bit about the process to getting to having the information that you have so uh with with alcohol and with food actually it's it's just basically writing with alcohol it was writing down a list of every single reason i drink and then I asked all of the people I knew, every single reason they drank. And so then I had this list and we live in this beautiful day and age where any old person off the street can go onto Google Scholar and they can download a scientific study for a few hundred dollars. And I just started methodically going through each one. Mm. And is this true? And what does this mean? Um, you know, with with food, it's, it's a little nuanced because obviously we still need to eat food. Yeah. And it's, it is, it has to be practical. It is not practical to avoid sugar. Like sugar is addictive, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you could just detox from sugar and then avoid it, but it is literally impractical mm -hmm. to- Because it's in so many it's things. in everything these days and stuff. And so it, it needs a, um, it's a little bit of a nuanced thing that I found, but I think, I mean, it really does really center on self-acceptance mm. and allowing that every single instance you're not going to judge yourself for it. You're just going to be like, okay, did I like that? You know, the thought, oh, I shouldn't have eaten that piece of cake. Like you think, oh, that's a, that's a good thought. Like I'm, I'm keeping myself in the straight and narrow. But if you think how that thought makes mm. you feel, like it makes you feel guilty. It makes you feel um, like, oh, well, I already did it. I might as well have another, right? But if you think just a slightly different thought, like I ate that piece of cake and it really wasn't worth it. Yeah. Like it's so, it's so slight, but that feeling is like, huh, wasn't worth it. Well, if you can do what you did with this book with about alcohol, which literally changed my life and probably saved it, with a book about food, um, I know that it will be um, successful in, in, its, in its promise. Do you think it's a 2025 possibility of it 2025 is actually kind of when I have it on yeah, my list Yeah, that for. would be amazing. Yeah. With, the, with the smoking, with the nicotine book, um, what has been your reaction to that or the reaction to that so i wildly underestimated how many people in my audience smoked mm. so there's almost no crossover mm -hmm. which is interesting which makes sense i guess i just you know you you go and you do the research and the number of smokers is still fairly high especially yeah. now that people are vaping yeah. but they're not really in the audience that i have 
yeah thus far cultivated yes so um so it's it's kind of kind of a sleeper book right now but for the people who are reading it it's working really well Well, it's interesting because so many people have asked me is there one like that so now they know there is one like that go to your website this naked mind and there's two already and maybe by 2025 there'll be a third and who knows what'll happen after that with that series i'd love to apply it to just just everything how cool because it's really pulling data having the patience and the uh foresight to to craft that and then it's and and giving us the information for us to make the choice on our own yeah is there anything else you want to make sure that we get across about the book or the work that you do no i'd just like to end with where we started which is you know if you're if you're drinking too much and you're feeling down on yourself like i just i just want people to know it's not their fault like it really isn't your brain has been duped it's been confused you're doing the best you can with the tools you have and you just might need some new tools and you know hopefully um we can get you that but it's not your fault wonderful thank you so much well thank you we'll have we'll have one of these for every book that you have that's great (laughs) love it